0: and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad, and I'll be hosting this podcast. Welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today, we're joined by James. James is going to talk about CDBCs for us. He's going to explain what the promise is, what are the pluses, maybe also the minuses, and of course, he works at uh, Ripple, which is a well-known company in the blockchain space or digital currency space. So uh, a lot to uh, learn from James, and uh, I'm curious to find out what's, uh, what's cooking from his perspective in the area of CDBC. So welcome, James. How are you today?
1: Hey, Rudy. Yeah,
0: I'm great. And uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Great. So you had a long and distinguished career at IBM. We chatted before we started recording. That also, I lived in in New York, and I forgot to tell you that IBM and my former employer Kraft, we were all big friends, and we used to call uh, some of our houses in the suburbs IBM House, right? And uh, so I have uh, good memories for a long time. So, what drove you from an environment like this, you know, being at IBM to the world of blockchain?
1: Yeah, well, it was uh, certainly an interesting journey. You know, I started off in the UK with IBM, um, really you know, selling into financial institutions. I guess it was like the early days of fintech. I was selling financial technology to, to banks and other financial companies. And then I moved to New York in 2001, did a few various jobs at sort of corporate headquarters, some pretty interesting roles, corporate development and so forth. And then I ended up back in the financial services world as the general manager for the payments industry for IBM. So that was a role that had me globally, you know, working with banks and payment companies and card companies for many years it was a you know wonderful experience and then in 2015 one of the executive architects on my team said hey James i need to tell you about um, blockchain and uh, like a lot of people in 2015 i said oh you mean bitcoin because i didn't really know that <laughs> <laughs> you know and he goes no 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 it's it's uh, related but it's the underlying technology behind bitcoin it's called blockchain so i said okay tell me about that so i got educated it was wonderful And I I kind of saw the potential of the technology for innovation and for you know fixing some efficiency issues, all sorts of different use cases. So I sort of searched around a little bit in IBM and uh, found a couple of colleagues that were also interested in this topic. So we went, got some money from our head of research, Arvind Krishna, who now happens to be the CEO. So uh, really great guy. Gave us some money to get started, and we built this blockchain business up inside IBM. So that was really how it started. And then it was payments and blockchain, it was like the perfect combination. And then the crypto side of it, you know, cryptocurrency was an area that also interested me, wasn't And it was an area that, you know, IBM was not as focused on. I mean, IBM at its core is a technology company. So that led me to sort of look externally. And um, I mean, I ended up at Ripple, and it was like the perfect combination, right payments, which I know, blockchain, which I know, and then uh, crypto. So that's the sort of uh, the journey. To where I am
0: now right and I think the connection there is the enterprise right so if you talk about ripple I think you talk about enterprise blockchain or enterprise level I guess right all right so I know also you're quite active on uh, on LinkedIn and uh, you've written an article on the predictions of uh, you know for blockchain and its use cases so I know it was quite uh, well researched and detailed so what are the key points of of uh, your views on where we can see blockchain Moving from where we are today.
1: Yeah, it's um, this is this is like one of the key questions, Ryan. I think everyone has their own opinion. Maybe some people slightly differently. You know, my my view is that blockchain as a technology, as an enabler, has got a massive um, potential across a whole range of use cases, not just in financial services, but in other industries like supply chain and so forth. Um, I think I think there are a few fundamental use cases that really will enable all the other ones to flourish and i think payments is one of those so um, obviously i'm biased i'm a payments guy but i mean clearly payments touches across lots of different use cases Um, you know payments generally is not really that efficient i mean some countries have very efficient domestic uh payment schemes but as a whole they're still not that efficient you know if you particularly if you want to go cross-border you know, payments can still take three to five days. You know, they have high failure rates. Sometimes it costs as much as five to seven percent to send money across borders. So that particular example is obviously one we're working on with Ripple. You know, blockchain enables that underlying infrastructure to change to be more efficient, um, you know, more cost-effective, more sustainable as well. Actually, so I think payments is is a key one. You know, we like to say in Ripple that we view the future of payments as is, is what we call the internet of value. And the concept there is making it as easy to move money around the world as it is uh, to move information today across the internet. Um, there, are, there are other use cases. Um, you know, some that I think are very promising are things like supply chain and trade finance. Um, you know, but ultimately, I'm also a big believer that, you have this concept of network of networks so you might have you know a network which is a payments network you might have another network which is say supply chain another one which is trade finance well these need to you know to get the maximum benefit these need to interoperate with each other so um, as well as individual use cases i'm very uh, high on trying to solve this interoperability problem so you can have a specialized network that does what it does really well like payments and other use cases can can use that as a as a tool all
0: right so let's follow up on this i mean obviously the payments and the currency they go hand in hand right and i know you also focus on cbdc's and uh well you know some countries are more on the topic or more hot on the topic than the others for example in switzerland a central bank representative stated last year that they see no benefits of uh, cbdc's over the currency as we know it today So what would be your answer to this? Uh, Why do we need such a thing and why we cannot stick to what we know, which is, you know, franc, euro, pound, or dollar?
1: Well, I mean, CBDCs is is definitely a hot topic. It's not a new topic. It's been, you know, people have been evaluating the potential of CBDCs for, you know, probably three years or more. And I think based on one of the surveys from from BIS, Bank of International Settlements, I think about 80% of central banks are, doing something with CBDCs, you know, a lot of it is still research and proof of concepts. So, but but to get back to your your specific question, I think it depends on the use case, right? I mean, if you're just looking to replace what you have today with digital, uh, you know, uh, national currency, then, you know, there are, you know, the benefits are more limited, right? I mean, there are countries like in Sweden that are fairly advanced, you know, looking at a use case which is to replace cash right they're trying to go to a cashless society yeah um you know di- central bank backed money right so there's no counterparty risk with central bank money um you know can be digitized and they have a a, a very advanced uh, pilot in sweden other other countries i think have come out with different different views right um if you're just like i said if you're just looking to replace what you have without adding any extra value then Okay, well, maybe it's not that interesting, but, mm-hmm. you know, my, my view is, you know, CBDC is an opportunity to innovate, right? I mean, broadly speaking, the use cases are, those domestic and there's cross-border, and then you have retail and wholesale use cases. But, um, you know, I think the values, or the values seems to be higher when you're dealing with cross border i we recently we ran a webinar in um, southeast asia just before christmas and you know with those countries in the asean region and there was a lot of discussion around yeah the, we have decent domestic payment schemes but when it comes to cross border it's really difficult and you know maybe cbdcs can be a, a help in that particular area
0: all right i see i see Now, you mentioned the world interoperability and, you know, and things like this. So let's uh, be a bit methodical and maybe bang on this message a little bit more. What do you think are the critical success factors that need to be fulfilled so CBDCs can take off?
1: I think ultimately, you know, like anything, right, you you need to uh, foster adoption. And what I mean by that is people need to be able to use their CBDC, right? So if they have a wallet with CBDC in it, they need to be able to spend it or send it to someone else, right? So mm. to me, uh, the basic level of interoperability is 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 to be able to coexist with you know existent payment schemes and existing e-commerce environments. So people need you know you need to be able to interoperate at that level. Um, I think also then you start thinking about okay, well, cross border, there's interoperability there. You know how do you go from a digital pound to a you know digital rupee right or or you know pick any particular country how do you how do you do that so that's sort of a a second level of interoperability but I think the um you you also need to have innovation as I mentioned earlier Rudy there's no point just replacing something with something that's slightly better or slightly different it needs to need to foster innovation so to my mind um you know the central bank's yeah, really need to think about working with the the private sector, right, to get that level of innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. Also, I think there's a balance required between the policy and technology. I mean, the technology itself is very exciting and and uh, can can unleash you know all sorts of new possibilities. But the governments and the and the central banks need to be able to do that in a way that they're comfortable from a policy perspective. So. I think for CBDCs to take off, you've got to have this balance between policy and the policy needs to be a right balance between control for central banks, because that's really their role, but then fostering innovation, um, you know, with, with, the, with the private sector. Um, I think another couple of things, just to mention, you know, without going into too much detail, but, you know, identity is a big uh, topic when it comes to CBDCs. You know, if you think about, um, you know, the world of the unbanked or underbanked, right? So maybe you know, parts of Africa, South America, Asia, uh, and even the US. There's a lot of, of unbanked people. Um, you know, how do you how do you link their identity to their currency, right? So if you want to do a disbursement, maybe because of the pandemic, um, you know, the US government struggled. Getting the right the money out to the right people because you know in many cases they didn't even have a bank account and they didn't have the right. Hmm. There's no national identity scheme, right? So it's complicated.
0: Or they send the or they send the cards, right? Uh, prepaid cards, and people thought yeah. these were just some promotions, and they threw it away. I heard.
1: Yeah, I think there are all all sorts of stories like that, you know, which is just very inefficient, right? And um, so I think my you know when I talk to central banks, I'm really trying to encourage them to think about what's possible not just think about replacing the old world right but another another example if you look at um a market like brazil right so brazil has a large unbanked population and it's not because the banks don't want to serve the population it's just because they can't make any money doing it the banks have you know these older inefficient systems expensive to run slow Right, so the uh, you know they just can't make any money w- when they're trying to serve people that have very low income. Whereas, yeah, you know, with blockchain and with um, innovation around CBDCs, you know, that is a, is a that's one area I think we could take a look at and say, hey, is there a more effective, more cost-effective model that could reach more of the population?
0: Right, and uh, so you mentioned, you know, or you explained your roots from IBM to Ripple, are uh, now and then to payments, obviously, and CBDCs. So. But let's look at it from a corporate perspective. What's the interplay between the CBDCs, Ripple, and the enterprise blockchain technology? What is the problem that you are solving in from these sort of perspectives, and how does it all fit together? I mean, we we talked uh, quite, you know, in a, on a personal level, we talked about uh, this on a policy level, but from uh, Ripple as a corporation, where do you
1: fit into that equation? Yeah, that's a good question, and. Um... I think the, the most important thing to note at the start, Rudy, is that yeah you know, we view ourselves as builders, right? So we are building and implementing technology. We're not trying to disintermediate the existing financial system, right? We're trying to make it better. So with that sort of as a, as a backdrop, you know, what we're really trying to do is um, bring our technology and our expertise to uh, the enterprise world. So... Working with central banks, obviously, and and um, retail commercial banks, and private and, and um, payment companies, um, and a couple. Of, let me sort of del- delve into that a little bit more detail. So, sure. um, and, I, and I mentioned this earlier. I think there's this balance between public and private partnerships. Yeah, a central bank really does not generally touch the public, right? When they when they print cash, it's distributed through commercial banks. And then the commercial banks, you know, set up accounts and, and will distribute that to uh, consumers. So that sort of layered approach, I think, is very important. And, you know, Ripple is trying to work, you know, as, as I mentioned, both with central banks and, you know, commercial banks to build our solutions out. You know, specifically around CBDCs, there are really three things that we're we're trying to do. You know, one is uh, the core ledger, if you like. So the, the, the technology that. Is used to mint or create the CBDCs and then distribute it and track the transactions, you know, on, of the systems of record, if you like, on, on the on the blockchain. And you know, we have a clear view that you know, a private a private instance of an existing de- decentralized ledger uh, is a good way to go, right? And what I mean by that is, you take the all the really robust um, experience of you know, an open source project that's built a ledger that's been running for multiple years, like like the XRP ledger, for example, um, and then you create a version that is mo- a bit more centrally controlled that a central bank can be comfortable with uh, running and, and that the, they will be able to still control their monetary policy and so forth. So that's the first step, right, is the actual basic ledger. So we're working on that. The second piece is, and again, I, I I don't want to keep banging this drum, but, you know, interoperability is is, is absolutely critical. So, you know, we're working on a project, uh, which is how do you move assets from one blockchain to another, you know, digital assets, digital money? You know, how do you very, very efficiently interoperate, say, between a digital dollar and a stable coin or between a digital dollar and a native uh, cryptocurrency how do you do that in a in a way that is you know robust and scalable right because ultimately you know with if cbdc's or well, when cbdcs are widely adopted these are going to be big systems that you know transact you know hundreds of thousands of transactions with you know millions if not billions of people eventually so that's the second piece interoperability and the third piece is you um, is what we call a a neutral bridge asset so this is the idea of you know how do you do you know foreign exchange between two different cbdc's right um you you could do that you know the central banks could have a bipartisan sort of agreement with each other uh, on exchange rate or you can go through you know what what we call a neutral bridge asset you know could be something like xrp that is essentially used as that as that uh that layer to do the you know, the, the, the FX between two different CBDCs.
0: And who are your key clients? I mean, are you building these solutions for banks or for the governments or central banks or none of the above or all of the above?
1: So this is one initiative within Ripple. If, if I just sort of step back a little bit and talk broadly about Ripple, then we'll come back to CBDC. So, you know, Ripple is um, our primary business is the what we call RippleNet, which is the global network of several hundred customers that are, you know, doing cross-border payments. And we we work, you know, we, our clients are payment companies, right? We don't, we're not a payments company ourselves. We don't directly work with the consumers. We work through companies, um, you know, the banks, you know, and MoneyGram and Santander and so forth. There's, there's a long list. So we're building that capability out um, as RippleNet. And then, you know, within, I'm in a group called RippleX, which is really focused on building out... The sort of utility, trust, and liquidity in, in uh, XRP. So we are working with uh, developers. We're working with uh, partners. You know, I think there are over you know twelve million users that we reach through the XRP ledger, for example. XRP ledger and something we have, something we're involved with called the interledger protocol. And then there are you know hundreds of projects uh, looking to use. You know, uh, digital assets um, to create new new businesses for themselves. So we we kind of have this sort of two hats, right? So RippleNet is uh, is the business around cross border payments, growing fantastically. RippleX is more is around growing the community around XRP and, and working on new new use cases. Now the the central bank piece is sort of um, a little bit of a, of a mix, right? Because you know we're we're working. With central banks to build out these capabilities that I mentioned, and you know they, they will. The solution will be a mixture of open source technology, maybe some elements from RippleNet down the road. It's still a little early to say exactly. You know, I don't. Want, I don't want to pre-announce too much stuff here. But um, so the answer really is uh, it's a long answer, Rudy. But yeah, work with all of the above. You know, so central banks commercial banks, and, and payment companies.
0: Right. And uh, of course, you know, in the world of blockchain, one month is maybe like a year or a m- or more in the corporate world. So a lot of people obviously use or they know about uh, RippleNet or XRP. But uh, have, has any anything changed over the last few years at Ripple in terms of focus, right? I mean, have you discovered that uh, something... Very important, which kind of uh, made you consider maybe even pivoting, maybe not, right? And uh, that leads me to then a related question: is which is how does the world of blockchain look like now from Ripple's perspective when you look at the other potential, you know, crypto digital currencies? Where does XRP stand uh, right now?
1: Yeah. Okay. So take to take the first one. It's 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 very interesting. I think the now I've been in Ripple about uh, twenty months. the company's over seven years old, so obviously a lot of things you know went before before me. But I think the there's been a very consistent uh, high level strategy around this. You know, the Internet of Value. Right. The, The goal here is to really help build a better world through you know more efficient payments initially, right? But but the strategy has always been to go beyond that over time. So I think that I think the strategies remained you know consistent. Now under the covers, you know, there's been a lot of pivots, right? Any any startup pivots you know significantly i think one of the big big shifts uh, a couple of years ago was was the move more towards uh, remittances as a as a key use case and we've seen a lot of traction and a lot of growth uh, around remittances and then you know a few other additional sort of add-on and complementary products are in the offing right so one that we released last year was line of credit so it's a way for for uh, payment companies to acquire XRP from us that they can then use for their cross-border payments. They use that uh, within an element of, of, the, of our ripple net called on-demand liquidity, which is a, essentially using XRP as a bridge asset you know, to avoid the need of having pre-funded Nostro accounts. So you know, in the old correspondent banking model, trillions of dollars of trapped capital sitting in, in uh, pre-funded accounts and you know, using on-demand liquidity, you know, we essentially remove that that need, which is really a game changer. I mean, it's an incredible innovation that was, you know, we've really been uh, yeah. operating for about two years now. The answer really was, you know, the overall strategy has not changed. You know, been very consistent, but the detail has, and I think that's, you know, we expect to see a lot more innovation coming, you know, on a year-by-year basis. And I think really the second part was really around more the, the landscape, right, uh, around, you know, Ripple and XRP and other potential players. Let me try and uh, answer that one. I think, first of all, I'd say, you know, we did we built RippleNet and we have continued to build that out. And, you know, I think the reason we're getting traction, or you know, one of the reasons is you know, the characteristics of blockchain that fundamentally supports our solution, which is high security, you know, privacy, speed an instant settlement right all great characteristics that you want for payments you know and uh, from a cross border perspective you know we're operating operating in you know over 45 countries across all continents except antarctica <laughs> we don't go there not yet anyway now we as i mentioned also we're working with the uh, with fintech companies and banks so it's it's a you know a, a comprehensive sort of view on the the market opportunity around payments um we're also very focused on standards right we you know a lot of i don't know how closely you follow the payments world but, you know iso 20022 is is really being heralded as as the, the 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 standard that everyone should be adhering to moving forward a lot of people are not there yet but we are yeah you know, we are we're fully you know compliant with iso 20022 it's pretty cool i think and I, again I, d- I just repeat something i mentioned earlier just to kind of reinforce it the on-demand liquidity offering that we have, you know, is really a game changer, right? There's, you know, based on the, the analysis, the research we've done, you know, over $10 trillion in trapped capital that we're addressing now. Obviously, we're still, you know, small and we're just, you know, starting out on that particular journey. But that particular um, offering, you know, grew, you know, 12x year on year uh, from 2019 to 2020 you know, with, with billions of dollars flowing through it. So that, we've, we feel very good about that. We th- we feel on our overall transactions, uh, we just sort of released for the first time some of the transaction numbers, you know, which are in excess of 3 million transactions over RippleNet in, in 2020. And then, you know, in Asia in particular, you know, we had huge growth. Uh, the region was up 80% year on year in terms of, you know, new deals signed. And, you um, one thousand seven hundred percent growth in transactions, which is huge. So I, I don't want to blow our trumpet too much, but the point here is I think we we view ourselves and I think the, the you know the, the evidence supports that we are a clear market leader. And I think, you know, if you look at you know look at a lot of the projects that were started, even when I was back at IBM and blockchain, you know, I don't think there's anyone else that's got the same amount of commercial transaction around blockchain that we have so far so we feel good we're not resting on our laurels though we're we're continuing to innovate and you know expect to see new offerings you know on a regular basis as we try and you know build more and more capability out to support more and more clients
0: so- sounds great but uh obviously there are always headwinds right in any yeah. any business and uh XRP is different than Bitcoin, and uh, not only because of the name, but also in a way this was structured and issued and and things like this, right? But, you know, Ray Dalio from Bridgewater says the government will kill Bitcoin. And uh, so what's your view on this? Is he right? And uh, if yes, I mean, what does that mean for XRP? Or is he wrong?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, Ray is a very, you know, renowned and um, successful investor. You know, up the up the road in um, in Westport, not far from from here. I, what I would say to that, Rudy, is that you know I think people's views have changed over time, right? I mean, if you look, I think Ray actually recently said that he thought Bitcoin was a game changing innovation. I think, you know, I think his views have, have probably changed a little bit, right? Uh, I don't know for a fact whether him or his company are investing or not, but. You know, if you look back at other examples you know you know JP Morgan and, and Jamie Dimon were you know pretty negative at, uh, at one point around crypto and, and bitcoin i think that has that has softened somewhat but i think the most most significant shift that we've seen in the last sort of 6 months or so is, is the number of institutional investors in into crypto i mean you just look at what has been happening with grayscale right with they with the, the trust funds that they have set up around crypto and the the growth that they're seeing so i don't i don't think the governments will kill bitcoin um i think i guess the other thing is uh, i've never seen any any scenario in the world where every government all governments agree on something right so even if you have one or two governments being anti something the chances are another government is going to be pro it right so it's a very complicated world that we live in but right. um no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think uh, the governments will kill Bitcoin or crypto. All
0: right. So, following this podcast, what would you recommend as a further reading? You know, whether that would be on the blockchain or something else. What's your favorite business book that you've read recently? And uh, you know, don't tell me it's a blockchain
1: revolution from down. <laughs> right. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's actually. Um, a very interesting book i i've I read there's actually two two elements to it you know, the, the book is called core right c-o-r-e it's mm-hmm. by a guy called neil gort and it's all about this concept of a single organizing idea and at the base to cut the long story short it's how businesses if they really really focus in around one key sort of principle and objective that they're working on um and, and do it with an eye on sustainability i mean not just you know, environmental sustainability, but sustainability for their customers and for them as a company. So it's a pretty interesting idea. Um, and then he, the guy Neil, just also released a playbook, right, which is basically a toolkit and how you can go looking at that. So I, I just thought that was it was a very interesting concept of um, you know organizing around something and actually doing good at the same time, right? Being sustainable.
0: All right, great. I mean, I will put it into the notes and. Uh you know, when we'll have our new book tips uh, club on Clubhouse, we'll, we'll talk about it as well. So great stuff.
1: So yeah, yeah no, and, and if people want to find out more from a ripple perspective, probably one of the best ways is uh, on our website, we, we publish a weekly ripple insights. So our point of view on various things. So um, that's always a, a good source if people want to find out a bit more about what we're doing.
0: And, uh, well, what if, uh, there are people who want to do business with you? What's the best way to, to reach out and find out more about what you can do together?
1: If it's on CBDCs, we, you, you can, uh, email to cbdc at ripple.com, or you can reach out to me, you know, through LinkedIn there, there are, I think if you're on our website as well, there is a, a landing page for people if they have general, general questions. So, uh, lots of ways to, to get hold of us. And we'd love to hear from people, right? I mean, you know, we'd love to, hear any feedback love to hear of any opportunities that we might be able to to engage with you know uh, we want to see the whole world around payments and blockchain you know rise up you know all all, you know as a saying you know the the rising tide raises all boats right And we're still so early into blockchain as a technology that um we really want to see you know the whole industry succeed
0: well great well thank you very much james and good luck to ripple
1: well thank you rudy it was uh, really great talking to you and uh Thanks for the opportunity and good luck to you as well. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.